This is Our American Stories, and Americans are expected to spend over $9 billion this year on Halloween, making it the second biggest commercial holiday behind only Christmas. More than half of American homes will be decorated on Halloween, and practically every American child will carve a pumpkin and go trick-or-treating. And no Halloween would be complete without a costume party or a visit to your local haunted house filled with ghouls and ghosts and plenty of staged blood. Today, we're going to bring to light the stories that have been hiding in the dark, answering the question, why do we do these strange things every Halloween? Brayden, go up there and say trick-or-treat. Trick-or-treat! Oh, there you go. What do you say? You're welcome. How do we describe Halloween without sounding insane? Mass children come to our doors and threaten us with a trick if we don't give them a treat. But why do we do this? And why do we carve faces into pumpkins, then light the candles inside? And why do we adorn our houses with coffins and tombstones? The truth is, we take great pleasure in scaring ourselves to death. This impulse is ancient. And so are our treasured Halloween traditions. Here's Talk Thompson, who teaches a ghost story seminar at USC. And its ancient origins go back to the old Celtic calendar. And the old Celtic tribe divided the year between a light half and a dark half. And uh, Samhain, their ancient holiday, was a precursor to our Halloween. It was the beginning of the dark half. Centuries before Christ, A tribe of warriors called the Celts celebrated their Samhain festival with bonfires on the night of October 31st across most of Europe and throughout the British Isles. The Samhain harvest represented the transition from the summer to the winter, and they were at the mercy of the elements. For these ancient peoples, it was a matter of life and death, and winter was the scariest season of them all. But the Celts believed there was even more to Samhain. Here's Leslie Bannatyne, author of Halloween Nation. It was a bit of a warning. You know, it's going to get cold and dark. Gather together, come home, and don't send anybody out alone in the dark. Here's USC history professor Lisa Biddle and Halloween historian David Skall. What marked Samhain and this transition from light to dark was that time and space became permeable, flexible. And so that spirits not only of the dead, but of the past or of other realities could sort of wander into our reality and humans could wander out and get lost in the other world as well. The veil between life and death was at its thinnest and the living and the dead could commingle. And that's at the the root of all the Halloween celebrations. On Samhain night only, the Celts believed those who had died in the past year walked the earth once more. But not every visiting ghost was friendly. So the Celts devised ways to appease these spirits. Here's professor of religion at Princeton University, Elaine Pagels comes from this very archaic sense that the dead return. You have to placate them, you have to do something with them, or they might might return and stay, they might trouble you and, you know, haunt you in various ways. 
To appease these spirits, the Celts would parade out to the edge of their villages with offerings of food and sweets as gifts for the dead, trying to coax the evil forces away from their homes. Here's Jack Santino, author of Halloween, Death and Life. The belief in death, the belief in the wandering spirits, the idea of dressing up in costumes and being allowed to perform mischief and pranks much as supernatural creatures would. Much of our contemporary Halloween traditions seem to be reflected in this ancient Celtic holiday called Samhain. The truth is, we know very little about Samhain. But what we do know is that their bonfires drew one familiar icon, the bat. In older times, people had bonfires on Halloween. Mosquitoes attracted to the bonfires and the bats attracted to the mosquitoes and probably the owls. Um, So you could see them flying over the Halloween bonfires and they became associated with the holiday. How did these ancient traditions survive into our modern era? They were preserved by the Catholic Church. By the 7th century, the Catholic Church had spread throughout most of Europe. Missionaries, including St. Patrick, who would become the patron saint of Ireland, had successfully converted the pagan Celts. The church had found that conversion was far more successful when attempts were made to offer clear alternatives to existing calendar celebrations, rather than simply stamping them out. It was a tactic used under Pope Gregory I to convert more pagans. He said, if you should come across a group of people worshipping a tree, said rather than cut the tree down and tell them that they were ignorant and in error, said instead, consecrate it to Christ and tell them to keep meeting as they were accustomed to meeting at the same spot. A key pagan festival destined to get a Catholic makeover was Lemuria, a Roman festival of the dead on May 13th where they performed rites to exorcise the malevolent and fearful ghosts from their graves. Here's Brown University professor of Roman history, Nicola Lewis. Of all the different days that they have in the Roman calendar to celebrate the dead, it was the spookiest. So on the Lemuria, what are called the larvae, the ghosts of the departed would come up um, and haunt people. The church co-opted Lemuria in 609, turning May 13th into what they called All Saints Day, also known as All Hallows Day, the word hallow being equivalent to saint. All Hallows Day honored the most holy of dead Catholics, those saints who attained heaven. All Hallows Day was such a success that church leaders made a decision to drain the life out of Samhain. So, they moved All Hallows' Day from May 13th to November 1st. Because of this move, people started calling Samhain All Hallows' Evening because it was the evening before All Hallows' Day. And this quickly shortened into All Hallows' Eve and finally into Halloween. And when we come back, more on the story of how Halloween came to be. This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with Greg Hengler and his piece on how Halloween came to be. People continued to dress in straw costumes or in animal skins, continued to put out offerings for the souls of the dead who were traveling at that particular time, continued to do much of what they had been accustomed to doing, but now doing it under the name of Halloween rather than under the name of Samhain. And then, to be safe, in the 10th century, the Catholic Church went one step further, adding a holiday to not just honor the saints in heaven, but all Catholics who died and had yet to reach heaven. So November 2nd became All Souls Day. In Mexico, this day is called the Day of the Dead. It's a blend of Spanish Catholic influences mixed with pre-existing pagan Indian elements. This is real important for Halloween because this is where Halloween gets its association with dead souls, death, and the supernatural again. The Catholic Church also established the tradition of trick-or-treating. It all started in the Middle Ages on All Souls Day when priests told church members to pray for souls trapped between heaven and hell in an intermediate world they call purgatory or final purification. Purgatory is not a pleasant place. It's not hell. It's not as bad as hell is, but it's still probably pretty fiery. Souls are kind of suffering there. Luckily, there is something that you could do. You could offer up prayers for them. So how do souls get out of purgatory? According to the church, if enough prayers were offered, a soul would be released up to heaven. Because of this, children would go souling, begging for soul cakes, which were spiced cakes filled with raisins. In return for these treats, the children and some adults would offer up prayers for souls trapped in purgatory. While this forerunner to trick-or-treat became a preoccupation for the medieval church, so did another future essential of Halloween, witches. Here's historian Steve Gillen. It made perfect sense for people in medieval times to believe that there were demons and witches. And if there were demons and witches and they were responsible for bad things in the world, it made sense that you hunt them down and you kill them. That was their worldview. A witch panic that climaxed in the late 16th century established the look of the character. Almost always a woman, witches were seen as the devil's handmaiden bent on evil and destruction. Here's Lisa Morton, author of the fascinating book, Trick or Treat, A History of Halloween. And a lot of the symbols that were associated with these women, who probably often lived alone, uh, may have been somewhat eccentric, of course, end up becoming associated with witches. In 1486, Pope Innocent VIII published a book claiming a direct link between witchcraft and the devil. He then outlawed the pagan Celtic religion altogether. Over time, Even the practical cooking tools used by all acquired sinister dimensions and became model Halloween icons, thanks to witches. Even something mundane as a broom became an instrument of evil, as well as handy transportation. 
Another accessory in every witch's lair was perfect for brewing devilish potions, the cauldron. Here's a clip from the 1956 Looney Tunes episode starring Bugs Bunny and the incredibly vain and hilarious Witch Hazel. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. <laughs> Not bad. Cauldrons become very popular. Again, it was something that every household had in medieval ages. It was your basic cooking implement. The pointed witch's hat was a variation on a country woman's hat. And, of course, even the animals associated with witches took on a demonic character. Here's historian Libby O'Connell. It's not surprising that cats are associated with witches and Halloween. Cats can be a little enigmatic. Um, You don't really know what's going on in their head. Also, they used to hang out near the hearth and by the brooms. So they became associated with witchcraft and with Halloween. This period saw the continued influence of one of Halloween's most well-known icons, the mask, which also appeared in tandem with another unfortunate Halloween tradition, destructiveness. Beggars on All Hallows' Eve guzzled their share of alcohol and demands for food and drink became a bit threatening. Masks helped hide their identities. In Britain, they got into some very particular forms that involved dressing in costumes and going house to house to present these little plays. And at the end of the performance, they would be rewarded with food and sometimes money. By the early 16th century, the Catholic Church was undergoing enormous changes. On Halloween Day in 1517, Exactly 500 years ago, Christian revolutionary Martin Luther nailed his famous 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church, attacking Catholic dogma. By launching the Protestant Reformation, Luther changed the face of Christianity and Halloween forever. He rejected all those symbols that stood between worshipers and God, including popes, priests, and saints. So, when saints went out of favor, so did All Saints Day and, of course, All Hallows' Eve. But the holiday was too popular to go away completely. In 17th century England, these customs survived only in rural areas. But thanks to a Catholic militant named Guy Fawkes, they would soon turn up in the city streets. On November 5th, 1605, Fox tried to blow up the Protestant-dominated House of Lords with 36 kegs of gunpowder. His plan was to assassinate King James I and restore a Catholic monarch to the throne. Guy Fox was tried, found guilty, and hanged. And according to legend, His body was then drawn and quartered, and the pieces were thrown into a fire. The next year on the anniversary of the failed plot, and the years following, London's children and adults mocked the memory of Guy Fawkes by causing chaos in the streets, parading, begging, and building bonfires. 
Today in England, this is called Guy Fox Day, or Bonfire Night. The custom that has evolved over the centuries in England is for children to make effigies of Guy Fox, and then Guy Fox is burnt on a bonfire. They spend several weeks prior to November 5th with their dummies and asking people for a penny for the guy. It's a begging tradition, not unlike trick-or-treating in its own way. But would this pagan celebration make its way across the Atlantic to disrupt the sanctuary of the New World? For the Bible-believing Puritans of New England, the supernatural was a dark, menacing force, not a harmless superstition worthy of a yearly holiday observance. They considered Halloween too pagan and too Catholic. The Protestants, being rebels, broke away from the Church of England because they believed it was too Catholic. And they left England for the colonies for this reason, and so they didn't want to carry anything with them that had to do with Catholicism, and Halloween was something that had to do with Catholicism. By the mid-19th century, America was primed for a much darker holiday. Having endured four long years of civil war that ended in 1865 with over a half a million dead. There were so many unclaimed, unknown dead bodies that the civil war left behind that this country was obsessed with death. And mostly it was that so many of these soldiers died unknown. We don't know what happened to them. So there was a huge sense of they could come back. Maybe they're not dead. It makes perfect sense that people would tell more ghost stories. And the very first Halloween ghost stories were about people coming back home. It's at this time America's Halloween story begins. And when we come back, America and Halloween, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our Halloween story, Halloween Comes to America. After the Civil War in Virginia, which hosted a large Catholic and Anglican population, the holiday thrived when Scottish and Irish immigrants brought their rural Old World Halloween customs with them, and they helped to establish even more American Halloween traditions. For the Scots, it was a little bit of a scarier night. Until fairly late, we're still talking about the appearance of bogies on Halloween. Bogies, or boogeymen, were ghosts used by adults to frighten children into good behavior, especially around Halloween time. They were said to be hiding under beds, 
tapping on windows or lurking by a gate. Halloween's signature symbol, the jack-o'-lantern, also began as a European tradition, but the prototype wasn't carved from a pumpkin. There's a great legend about a character named Jack-o'-lantern. And Jack was a troublemaker, but he was so bad, he even managed to get himself thrown out of hell, which is not an easy thing to do. But the devil did decide to have pity on him and scooped up an ember from the fires of hell and gave it to him. So Jack takes the ember and he puts it inside a hollowed out turtle. And he walks around and that becomes the legend of Jack O'Lantern. In one age-old European practice, children would carve their own jack-o'-lanterns out of turnips and light them with candles. Here's historian Donna Curtin. The first reference we have in the United States to jack-o'-lantern comes from Nathaniel Hawthorne, and he's writing in Twice Told Tales, and he's describing someone's very tattered coat full of holes, and when you hold it up to the light, it shines like a jack-o'-lantern would. Planted in July and harvested in October, Americans substituted the big round orange pumpkin for the old world's hard little turnips. And Halloween finally had its trademark. The ghastly face of Halloween was reimagined in gruesome shades of orange and black at the turn of the 20th century. For the first time, Artists of the era brought together all things scary and linked them to Halloween. Skeletons, spiderwebs, jack-o'-lanterns, and bats. They all established the look of Halloween that we still use today. Among these icons is the white sheeted ghost. The sheet that a ghost wears derives from uh, the winding sheet, the shroud that corpses were traditionally wrapped in before burial. Horned devils came from medieval depictions of Satan and witches from witch-hunting hysteria that swept through Europe and Puritan America. Witches became very popular in the early part of the 20th century, which is why they naturally became linked to Halloween. And there's actually a change in the way we perceive witches. The witches... Uh, the 19th century were old, they had big noses and there were warts, and the witches in the 20th century are actually it's kind of attractive. It makes Halloween just a little, not only scary, but also a little naughty. But even as Halloween was dressing its old customs in new costumes, it was also creating new traditions. Bad ones. In the early 20th century, Halloween was getting out of hand. Young vandals were destroying private property and causing mischief on Halloween to the dread of the locals and police departments all over America. If Halloween were to survive, it would have to change. Schools and police departments and other civic groups consciously and very actively promoted the idea of taming Halloween. And so they started to invent all sorts of things for kids to do, to divert them. Townwide parties, costume contests, games, everything that you could think of to get the kids away from pulling tricks and into the light. Novelty companies like Denison Company helped out these civic efforts. 
Dennison published a series of Halloween booklets called Bogey Books that suggested ways of turning Halloween from a prank night into a party night. Dennison was one of the first companies that realized there was money to be made off of Halloween. They started to put their own Halloween materials out for retail sale in drugstores all over America. Dennison also sold masks and paper costumes. It was the first time costumes were specifically made and marketed for Halloween. Before that, costumes had all been homemade. Soon, other manufacturers looking to tap into the kid market for Halloween began making more durable costumes. Sears' first box costumes came around 1930, and then it it went from there. And the costumes came off of radio show characters and the funny papers. Costumes for parties, costumes for wild, town-wide parties, and for school parties and church parties. Halloween was a big social occasion. Halloween parades also helped drag the holiday out from the shadows and into the public arena. Allentown, Pennsylvania, may have been the first parade in 1905, but others soon followed. Tom's River, New Jersey in 1919, and the little town of Anoka, Minnesota in 1920. Anoka residents got tired of waking up on November 1st to find their cattle roaming on Main Street. A result of Halloween pranking, So, Anoka Civic Leaders instituted a program of Halloween parades, giveaways, and bonfires. Anoka has held its parade every year since. In fact, the city with a population of 17,000 now bills itself the Halloween capital of the world. Storyteller extraordinaire Garrison Keeler creator of the Minnesota public radio show A Prairie Home Companion, remembers what it was like growing up in the Halloween capital of the world. There was a big granite chip mosaic on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Main Street that said, Anoka, Minnesota, Halloween capital of the world, and a black witch in the center of it, so there was proof. The reason for Halloween in Anoka, the big civic part of it, the children in their costumes marching down the street, was to try to blunt or thwart um, the tradition of vandalism, mischief, which was the other side of Halloween, of course. You could toilet paper somebody's house, and I don't know if you've ever tried to get wet toilet paper out of a very tall maple tree, but uh, after you've done that, you start to believe in capital punishment. Each of these local efforts to tame Halloween worked to some extent, but what Halloween really needed was a whole new tradition, and it would soon get one. Trick-or-treat is amazingly new. People think trick-or-treat goes back for centuries, and it doesn't. Trick-or-treat is actually less than 80 years old, probably. Um, The term derives from pranking that was very widespread and destructive in America in the 20th century. And at some point, somebody came up with the brilliant idea of buying off these pranksters. 
Homeowners bribed rowdy kids with homemade treats such as popcorn balls and candy apples to avoid getting pranked or tricked. In 1939, the phrase and the custom turned up in print. Doris Hudson Moss published an article in American Home Magazine that talked about the success she had having a Halloween open house for the kids in her neighborhood. She didn't get tricked. She gave them sweets. It all worked. And when we come back, the final segment, our Halloween story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we return to Greg Hengler and his very special reporting on Halloween, its origins, how it came to America, and now the final part of this story. Trick or treat, trick or treat, trick or treat for Halloween. With new customs came new treats. Now kids began getting store-bought pre-packaged candies. Mars bars, Reese's Cups, M&M's, and good old Hershey's chocolate. Candy finally killed the rowdy Halloween. And now the time was right for the reinvented holiday to hit Hollywood. Hollywood has forever made movies from the creepy to the comical. Here's the 1952 Disney short titled Trick or Treat starring Donald Duck. Donald's nephews, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, approach their uncle's door for a Halloween treat. Uh-oh, but Donald drops a trick into the boys' pillowcases. Lit firecrackers. And then follows it up by dropping on them a bucket of water that's been dangling above their heads. In 1966, just a year following A Charlie Brown Christmas, Halloween stature zoomed off the charts when America went trick-or-treating with Charlie Brown. Here's executive producer of the Peanuts animated specials, Lee Mendelson. The whole idea of the Great Pumpkin, of course, came from the comic strip when Sparky Schultz decided that it would be very funny if one of the kids got his holidays mixed up. And uh, so that's how Linus ends up in the pumpkin patch every year. Who are you writing to, Linus? This is the time of year to write to the Great Pumpkin. On Halloween night, the Great Pumpkin rises out of his pumpkin patch and flies through the air with this bag of toys for all the children. You must be crazy. When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? When you stop believing in that fellow with the red suit and the white beard. Halloween night. A small American town. Fifteen years ago. Halloween-themed cartoons were one thing. A movie for adults with Halloween as its theme was another. 
Nobody had ever tried it before. That is, until director John Carpenter took a stab at it in 1978 with the simply titled classic, Halloween. Michael? Here's John Carpenter. The idea for calling my film Halloween came from the distributor. And when he said it, I thought, you know, he's absolutely right. There's never been really a Halloween-themed film. It's one of those eye-openers. Wow, why didn't I think of that years ago? What a great idea. Carpenter's $325,000 film about Michael Myers, a silent killer who escapes from a mental institution on Halloween, would spawn a franchise grossing more than $500 million. It also elevated the horror film from B-movie status to a respected genre. The slasher film also redefines speed. We learn that no matter how fast you run, Michael Myers walks faster. Carpenter's self-composed Halloween theme became recognizable apart from the movie. Here's John Carpenter and his band performing his iconic Halloween theme in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater in 2016. Horror movies will live forever. And completely by accident, Carpenter's film would also redefine our attitudes about Halloween masks. It started when the wardrobe budget forced the crew to create a mask for the villain for next to nothing. Here again is John Carpenter. The production designer ran up to Burt Wheeler's magic shop on Hollywood Boulevard and bought this Captain Kirk from Star Trek mask, which didn't look anything like William Shatner, just this strange face, elongated face. But it was spray painted and, and, and fixed up a little bit. It was distorted, which is perfect. It's kind of written that way in the script, as wearing a face. The bargain basement mask and the villain behind it soon became another Halloween icon. Today, that trend has escalated to an obsession. Nail-biting knockoff film franchises like A Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Scream, and Halloween are inspiring growing legions of kids to dress to kill. Masks take their inspiration from pop culture, religion, politics, sports, you name it. And a growing number of faces behind them belong not to kids, but adults. Halloween has become a huge adult activity, and I I don't think that was uh, the case, say, 50, 60 years ago. But it's been, again, specifically set aside where you can be somebody that you normally aren't. Uh, You can get behind a mask, you can wear clothes you would never wear during the rest of the year, uh, and people enjoy these get those children who are now growing up and they become very nostalgic for Halloween. So Halloween shifts again, starts to become more of an adult holiday. 50 years ago, when you were too old to trick or treat, you probably had to stay home and hand out candy. There was nothing else for you to do. Now there is a vast and imaginative haunted house industry just for you. And there's something like 4,000 haunted houses in the United States every year. Here again is John Carpenter. I loved haunted houses. 
fascinated me. They terrified me as a kid. But haunted houses aren't the only activity for adults on Halloween. From the two million people attending New York City's Greenwich Village Halloween Parade to the half a million attending West Hollywood's Halloween Carnival, the holiday takes a walk on the wild and naughty side. If you look at the costumes that are sold to adults these days, the costumes for women are all kind of borderline prostitute costumes. You know, the sexy nurse, the sexy maid, the sexy anything. Clearly, a lot of women want to have a very sexy side of them, and it's only on Halloween that they bring it out. Maybe, you know, they could do a little more often. Not surprisingly, alcohol plays a huge role in Halloween's popularity. So much so that by the 1990s, beer sales for Halloween surpassed both the Super Bowl and St. Patrick's Day. Halloween's popularity is also due to the fact that it embodies the American obsession with self-transformation, being who you aren't or who you would like to be. Trick-or-treaters remain on high alert today. And just as Halloween has scared kids for years, Halloween scares parents too. They fear sending their kids out into a hostile world of trick-or-treats full of poisoned candy and razor blade riddled apples. Reynoldsburg police confirm it was a razor blade found in a piece of candy. They're recommending you spread out all of your children's candy and inspect each piece. I grew up hearing about razor blades and apples myself. And it's clearly what we would call a contemporary legend. Uh, another term is urban legend. There's a great societal unease about this idea that we're telling our kids to go take candy from strangers. So there's a lot of stories about razor blades and candied apples and, and these sorts of things. Uh, and parents every year get very, very worried about it. Did razor blades and apples ever happen? Uh, I believe there are a couple of cases, but of course you can ask which came first, you know, the story or the actions. Razor blades and apples, jack-o'-lanterns, soul cakes. They make up the legends, the texture of the Halloween we know. Today, Halloween wears many masks, yet, it still remains the domain of kids. When you're a kid, you had one night a year where you were in charge, you got to dress up, you got to be something that you usually weren't, and you kind of even got paid for the privilege of this. It was an amazing holiday. Look closely, and you will see Halloween is a showcase for everything the human race fears. Through the centuries, we've learned to live and tame that which scares us most. It's invigorating, it's sensual, there's a freedom to it that is very, very enjoyable. At the same time, it's ritualized. You can do this at a certain time, a certain place. Some of the images of Halloween, some of the decorations, if people would have put them out at any other time of the year, their neighbors would call the police. But at Halloween, you're allowed to take these very disturbing kinds of ideas and deal with them directly. There's a great liberation, a great sense of freedom to that. It is on this day of freedom that Americans turn their fears into fun. I'm Greg Hengler. And we here at Our American Stories would like to wish you and yours a very happy and safe Halloween. And great job as always on that, Greg. And my favorite part of the art, I'd read Hawthorne and I was an American lit major. I did not know he introduced the jack-o'-lantern into America. 
Again, thanks for those details, Greg. A lot of work goes into pieces like this. And you can hear all that we do here on Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. The Halloween story here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell every kind of story here, from art to sports to business and, of course, history. And we do it this day in history every day, and we love books. And we've done David McCullough and the Wright Brothers, and we've done that great, great book about Mark Twain's last and epic tour in his life to, well, get some money back because he'd been broke from so many adventures and misadventures in the stock market and in business. And a book review caught our attention in the Wall Street Journal, and the title was The Franklin House Divided. And here's how it started. On the 4th of July, 1776, Benjamin Franklin was in Philadelphia, having helped to draft the Declaration of Independence while his son, the governor of New Jersey, was under arrest in Connecticut, having been branded an enemy of his country for persisting in his royal duties and opposing the revolution. In less than a year, William Franklin would be taken to the notorious Litchfield Gowl, a destination for, among others, traitors who had abused their privileges in lighter incarceration. And that led us to the guest that joins us now. The book review was for The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's House, and Daniel Mark Epstein joins us now. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be with you. And Daniel, tell us, what drew you to this book? Well, I was always interested in Benjamin Franklin from the time I was a kid, you know, as being one of the most versatile Americans, a man who was a great inventor, uh, and probably the, the, the first great scientist in terms of uh, electricity, and of course everybody knows the story about Ben flying the kite, and I remember seeing the woodcut of, uh, of Benjamin Franklin flying the kite with his little boy, and I wondered what would it be like to have Benjamin Franklin as a father. I mean, a man who was not only a great inventor, but um, created the militia in Pennsylvania in order to defend the frontier against the Indians, and then you know created the first postal system in Pennsylvania and the University of Pennsylvania. And then, of course, became uh, one of the greatest American patriots during the Revolution. What would it be like to be that man's son? Uh, and then, of course, I found out that um, Benjamin Franklin's only son was um, illegitimate, a bastard. 
but that uh, he was raised just as if he had been a legitimate son. And the two of them were partners in politics and in military affairs and uh, later in diplomacy. Um, so it was an extraordinary father-son relationship. And the fact that they went different ways during the Revolution and that William Franklin um, became the governor, the royal governor of New Jersey, while his father, of course, was the greatest patriot, uh, drove them apart. And I thought, what a tragedy and what a great story. So I actually wrote a poem about this in the 1990s. And do you have that poem? Do I have it with me right now? (laughs) No, no. I mean, it was published long ago. And as often happens, because I I was a, a poet before I became a biographer, several of my uh, poems have been transformed into these larger and more complete biographies. And well, a good case of that. And that's how it really stuck with you. I mean, it went from poetry to, to, uh, to nonfiction. And in the end, poetry is, is storytelling as well. And, uh, and that's what you're doing here. Talk to the, the listeners, because a lot of people don't know this about American history. This was no duck walk for ordinary Americans. It split families. It split fathers and sons. Some people were with the revolutionaries and the, and the patriots. Some were with the, with, the, with the crown. And some were just hiding under the table, hoping it would pass. How did this basically split up, particularly in the area where Franklin lived in Pennsylvania? Of course, the numbers changed. But at the beginning, uh, the majority of the people were against the revolution. And in fact... Uh, Benjamin Franklin and his son, in their works of diplomacy um, in England, tried to prevent the revolution. It was only after the British beca- uh, government became more and more oppressive and they sent troops to Boston um, that Benjamin Franklin finally became a patriot fairly late in the game, around 1775. Uh, so they both resisted the revolution. As far as the numbers are concerned, by 1776, um, I would say a third of the American people were for the revolution, a third were against it, and the other third were just trying to blow with the wind and try to, you know, try to, um, try to keep out of trouble. And talk about now, uh, just briefly, we'll, we'll open, up the, open up the lid on the next segment about this father-son conflict. But were there, were there battles out in the streets? Was this quiet? Was this simmering? What was the, what was the climate like for folks day to day? Obviously, Franklin had, a, had something to do with newspapers as well. Talk about what it felt like then, because today all we hear about is, my goodness, the climate today in America, it's just so hard. But my goodness, we have seen much tougher times in this country. Well, um, just as an example, um, during the, the passing of the Stamp Act, uh, there were riots in the streets in, uh, in Boston and Philadelphia. And by 1775, um, there was really open warfare in the streets of many cities um, over, the, um, over the tax, uh, the ver- various tax collectors, people protecting them, people attacking them. And uh, by 1776, there were these provincial uh, committees of safety who would um, actually hold individuals uh, accountable if they said anything that, uh, that seemed to be threatening to the um, movement for independence. And this was the point where Governor Franklin, you know, as the last royal governor of New Jersey, was defending, uh, defending the loyalists, the people who protected the crown. So it really was, uh, it was a revolution in, I mean, it was a uh, civil war 
in the streets of the major cities uh, all over all over America. Indeed, it was our first civil war. I mean, that's what I got from the book. I mean, we had one before we had one. This is Lee Habib, and this is Daniel Mark Epstein and his terrific book, The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's House. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return with the author Daniel Mark Epstein and the book The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's House. Now, we had talked about briefly, Daniel, uh, what Ben Franklin was like and his remarkable contributions to this country. There were very few men with his biography, maybe no American with his biography. And let's talk about that son. You said he was a bastard child. Talk about his life and how he got from being Ben Franklin's son to the governor of a state, and there weren't that many states back then. Well, he was, um, William Franklin was an extraordinary young man in his own right. Uh, people talk about Ben Franklin as being precocious, as a businessman and a printer and a politician, uh, but his son also was extraordinary. Um, his son wanted a military career, and so he went off and, and joined, uh, joined the King's Army at age 15, and by the time he was 18 years old, he was a captain, which was the highest rank you could attain in America without um, paying for it. And um, at that point, he retired from the Army, and uh, his father got him a really good tutor, and he started studying law. And then he worked for his father um, in the um, legislature, in the Assembly of Pennsylvania, so he got this political career. And then when his father got the job to go off to England as the agent for the Assembly of Pennsylvania, representing the, the Assembly against the proprietors who refused to be taxed, his son went with him. And in England, his son rose very quickly. Uh, he went to the bar uh, and got his law, his law degree in his mid-20s, and shortly after that uh, was appointed to be the governor of New Jersey. So at that point in his life, he was in his late 20s. Uh, his father was um, 50, in his mid-50s. He was even more powerful in the, uh, in the government than his father was. So he had an extraordinary career. And so let's get down to this conflict. I mean, by the time we get to the Stamp Act, as we had indicated before, um, the, the country was in pretty much open rebellion and a civil war was brewing. And William took a stand, and Ben took a stand. And talk about uh, their final meeting in particular was remarkable. But before we get to that, build up to that if we can. Set up that, I, I think, almost just tragic scene between a father and son. Well, it's really extraordinary. 
the extent to which the two men were living in different worlds, because um, by 1775, two years before the actual uh, Declaration of Independence, uh, William had been living in America. He was the governor of New Jersey, and he'd been the governor of New Jersey for more than a decade uh, in trying to represent the king's interests in America and trying to prevent this revolution, which he knew would be a disaster. And a lot of people, even Benjamin Franklin up until 1775, felt it would be a big mistake for America to separate from the mother country. Meanwhile, his father is in England, and his father is still working on behalf of the colonies, representing the colonies' interests in, uh, in England uh, against Parliament. And he's seeing more and more corruption in, uh, in England, and uh, in the meantime, the, 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 the English government is sending troops to Boston and the rest of America in order to enforce these uh, taxation laws and he's growing more and more bitter against the uh, the English government, so that the two of them were living in different worlds. And when it finally came down to the uh, 1776 and the Declaration of Independence, uh, William was thoroughly on the side of the king and the crown, and his father at that point was a confirmed American patriot and revolutionary. So they just went different ways. Even before that, I think there was a certain amount of jealousy between father and son, as sometimes happens, tragically. Um, And um, his dad, I think, was a a little bit jealous of William. So let's talk next about this father and son. They're at loggerheads. What happens to William next as he takes his stand? The country is moving to war. It's clearly ready for war. William is not. Well, first of all, his father came home in time to try to talk his son over to the the side that he believed would be safest, uh, that is, the side of the revolutionaries. And the two had some very, very stormy confrontations um, in Pennsylvania and in New Jersey, uh, where where, uh, his father visited him, and he did everything he could to try to get him to come over to the side of the revolutionaries, because that was his side and the family's side, and William refused. And William uh, ended up being the last, um, the last royal governor to do the king's business in America, uh, stubbornly refused to leave the governor's mansion, and had to be taken away bodily, and was put into the worst prison in America, the Litchfield, Litchfield Jail, where he was in solitary confinement uh, with bread and water for 18 months. Uh, and suffered terribly during that time. Um, he finally was released in a prisoner's exchange, but his father had very little to do with that, and eventually went back to England. And this had to really hurt Ben Franklin. I mean, A, it's his son, and no matter what kind of jealousies might have existed, to watch this befall, this kind of plight befall your son, had to be difficult. Moreover, he's a very public figure, and it wasn't as if his son was some wallflower. He was a governor who was now in jail. How did he handle that? Well, Franklin said nothing had ever hurt him so bad in his entire life, and you have to believe that. And there was a lot of public criticism of him for not, uh, for not helping his son out. But remember, he was the minister plenipotentiary to France and could not be seen as being in collusion with, uh, you know, with a Tory. And so he was in a horrible, it's really a tragic situation, uh, which really is kind of like the, um, uh, the Revolutionary War in microcosm. And do you think he really understood his son's hardship? 
I don't. No, I don't really think. I think the the part of the tragedy of the book and what I finally end up saying in the end is that these were two men who could never reconcile, although the son wanted to, William wanted to more than his father did. They could never reconcile because they they just did not understand each other. And these were two very intelligent men. So it shows you just how extreme uh, this break between father and son can be when it happens. Yep, and, and in the end, the, the father didn't understand the son, but the son didn't understand the dad either. I don't think so. I don't. Part of the, what, what we haven't spoken about is that at the end of the war, William became a counter-revolutionary, a violent counter-revolutionary, and uh, this his father could not, could not ever forgive. And indeed he couldn't. And by the way, father-son's stories, well, they're riveting, always drawing everyone in. I mean, this is how Arthur Miller made his living, telling father-son stories. Heck, it's, it's how Bruce Springsteen's made his. And this is as good and as harrowing a father-son story as I've ever read. Daniel Mark Epstein, The Loyal Son, The War in Franklin's House. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And, you know, we love to do these stories about history and as always, so often, we bring you this day's in history by Hillsdale College. But stories like this are always brought to us by the fine folks at Hillsdale, too. And my goodness, one of the things I had forgotten to ask uh, Daniel was what the similarities were today to then. Uh, and in large measure, that populist movement of the revolutionaries, well, it came about because they had been felt like they'd been governed by a foreign and far off power. And that's, of course, the British crown. And in large measure today, a lot of the populist movement, many people believe, is because there's a far-off power called Washington, D.C. And many people in this country feel like that foreign power or that faraway power isn't responsive to their needs and to their lives. Again, as always, these stories, the stories about American history, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale... Hillsdale can get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu. And folks, they have terrific, terrific online courses there on everything. And the one I'd most highly recommend to start things out is the Constitution 101 because it digs in and drills down on the founding fathers and what they were after as they created the most important document in world history. And many people believe that. It's not just us saying it. We don't have a lot of opinions here in the show We just tell stories, and one of the stories coming up, we'll be doing a a long-form series on the Constitution and how it came to be. But go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And again, The Loyal Son is the book, The War in Franklin's House, and we learn in this story that there was a civil war in this country long before the Civil War, and it had started off with just a small minority of Americans wanting to fight the revolution, But ultimately, many more joined, many resisted, and again, many, well, they just hid, hoping it would all pass. And this story of Ben Franklin and his son, and his son being in, imagine this, solitary confinement for 18 months with bread and water. The most famous of the founding fathers, but for George Washington, and his son rotting in jail. What a story. Ben Franklin's story, his son's story. Here on Our American Stories.
Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago, Chicago, I will show you around. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on our show, we tell stories about everything from music to cars to sports, the American dream, periodically public policy. But we also like to talk about where and how Americans are living, where and when are they moving and why. And when we came across Joel Kotkin's book, The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us, it sparked a lively discussion, and we decided in our studio that we were going to drill down. We picked four or five books a year to drill down on, and one of them was Greg Ipp's terrific book, Foolproof, and he's the managing economics editor of the Wall Street Journal. And it was also all about risk and safety. And it was fascinating. We ended up doing a multi-part series. And we're about to do the same with Joel's book. And we welcome Joel to the show. It's good to be here. You bet. And Joel, you heard Chicago coming in from Frank Sinatra. We wanted to start off. Chicago's population, uh, a couple of my guys here on Research pointed out, is the same 2.7 million uh, today as it was in 1920. And Houston, uh, a city that generally sort of attacked for its ugliness and its sprawl and its lack of uh, unified zoning cohesion, is about to overcome Chicago. Uh, let's start there and talking about where people are moving from and to. Well, of course, you know, the city limits are, are somewhat limited, but of course, what, um, and that sort of, that, today, the vast majority of the population in virtually all the metropolitan areas is outside the city core or even the city limits. But, look, the, the reality is that Chicago, which has a very powerful PR machine, you know, gets very nice mentions um, you know, fairly often, is a city that essentially um, is, has lost its position as the business center or is certainly losing the position of, of the of the middle part of the country that's really going i think fundamentally to dallas uh, it's lost its manufacturing and industrial status largely to houston um, and it's a city with a you know very high crime rate um, it's uh, it's got terrible debt issues i mean houston has its own debt issues but not quite as bad as chicago um, it's a city that's been terribly mismanaged for a very long time uh, and um is clearly you know, not the city it was certainly in 1920, and 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 probably not the city it was in uh, 1960. I mean, it is it has been on a constant sort of gradual decline. Even though at the same time, its downtown is maybe the most beautiful in the country. There are neighborhoods in Chicago that you you would say these are the, some of the great neighborhoods in the United States, but they're also just huge expenses. You want to talk about ugly huge expanses on the west side, on the south side, that are, are horrific places and, and, and with very, very little hope um, and very high crime. So uh, you know, basically what Houston has done is Houston has you know, got lower costs. It's been somewhat less corrupt. Um, and uh, the other thing is that people continue to move to Houston. You know, people will say, well, you know, Chicago's a great place and Houston's a horrible place. And how come people migrate to a horrible place and leave a wonderful place. You would ask that question. Yep, you would. And, and by the way, Joel, in a, in a piece I had written uh, for National Review called Southern Like Me, because I moved from New Jersey to Oxford, Mississippi, and people in the North looked at me funny. And, I, and they, particularly on the race issue, were looking at me funny. And I said, look, 
You know, there's this guy, Joel Kotkin, who's been keeping track of this, tracking census data, and more black people have now moved back to the South than escaped the South to move to the North in the 1940s and 50s. And if the South is such a racist, awful place, why are black people moving back to it? Uh, black people are human beings like everyone else, and think that they move for opportunity, and not just opportunity per se in terms of jobs, but a quality of life, what you can afford to have. Um, I mean, when you, you know, I always get a kick out of this, that some of the cities that are most um, progressive, if you want to use that terminology, on race issue, you know, most sympathetic to Black Lives Matter, most uh, raging about, uh, about Donald Trump's uh, you know, nativism and racism, which, you know, which is something certainly the people should react against. But the, what they're in the cities like San Francisco, Portland, Seattle, Boston, all the cities that are actually having their own form of ethnic cleansing. The black and, in some cases, Latino populations are, are, are shrinking. In many cases, we're small to start with um, as these cities have gentrified. So, you know, the, the, you know, you don't have a huge number of black people moving to Seattle. I mean, the, the way a place like Seattle or Portland um, uh, uh, runs, it just there is no real room for a, a black community. And I think African Americans and the ones I've spoken to, particularly in places like Houston, um, feel they feel at home. They feel this is where they were from originally. This is this is a place where um, where you know the chance of owning a home is much much higher than it might be um, in in a place like New York or Los Angeles. And so that's why they're moving, because, you know, they're not just moving from the Northeast. They're moving from California as well. Yep, yep, all over the country. And what's interesting is when I first got here, Joel, I was stunned at the level of integration here compared to New Jersey, which had some of the highest levels of segregation. I grew up there. There was one black family in my whole town in Bergen County, and all the black people lived in one place. All the white people lived in another place. And I go to a, I go to a school district where 35% of the kids or African-American or Hispanic, and the kids are together, and all through the state you find that. And I think through the South you find black and white living together in ways that you don't see in many other places, Joel. Well, there's, there's also, you know, there is a, you know, a, a, for all the, the nasty history, which is certainly there, yep. there's, there's, a, there's a cultural um, similarity. The, the music that, that people like, the food that they eat, the, the, the way they, they, they worship have tremendous... Uh, similarities um, that are very strong. You know, it's it, it's always funny when I when I would travel around the world and you'd go to places um, in uh, let's say in, in Asia where there were Indians and Pakistanis who would be at each other's throat at home. Right. But but when they're in a different environment, they say, "Well, you know, we we eat curry. We have the same. Right. We have you know a lot of the same history." And so I think that there's a there's a sense of of being at home in the South and. Uh, at the Center for Opportunity Urbanism, we did a study on um, on best cities for minorities, and, and and one of them was obviously African Americans. And what was funny is, thirteen of the fifteen best places for African Americans measured by the whole sense of a series of categories were in the old Confederacy. I just thought that was kind of ironic. Well, it's it's, it's ironic, but yet for people who've lived here, they'll, they'll always say, "Look." The laws separated us. The Klan was here. It was horrible. But, you know, we knew each other. We really did know each other. And I think that, and, and as you said, that shared common culture is overwhelming. Um, but, you know, it, the more I get to spend time here, 
The more that doesn't only not surprise me. What surprises me is that no one knows this story in the country, Joel. It's a, I think it's one of the great untold stories in America. Well, I, I, I think that it's be, you know in part because you know prejudice comes in all different forms, and one of the prejudices are things that may have been true in 1965 or 1975, but you know that's 40 years ago, are stuck in people's minds. You know. Um, and and they have a hard time changing them. You know, it's like views of the suburbs. The suburbs are X Y Z. You know, they're I E. They're all white. They're, right. They don't allow blacks. They right. Uh, they don't have any culture. The food is terrible. Well, a lot of that was true forty years ago. But you know what? If you want a good Indian meal in Houston today, you go to Sugarland. If you want to have good Vietnamese food in Southern California, you go to Orange County. Right. Um, because you know what? The immigrants, like the African-Americans who can do it, are moving to suburbs, and they want to move to nicer suburbs. They don't want to move to suburbs that maybe are right near the ghetto but are still very, um, very poor. Right. Well, when we come back, we're going to continue this discussion with Joel Kotkin, a book we love and that we're digging into, The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're rejoined by Joel Kotkin, author of The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us, and he also happens to run a think tank, Center for Opportunity Urbanism, and that's based in Houston, Texas. Joel, thanks again for joining us. It's my pleasure. And Joel, a quick question on technology and the role it's playing in how and where we live, and and also this idea of the of the arts and food moving out to places where people live. I'm I'm wondering about the role of technology in all this and how that relates to where and how Americans are moving and living. Well, one of the things that technology is allowing is for people to have access to information, culture, in a way that they didn't have if they were isolated, let's say, in a small town. I mean, you're in Oxford, Mississippi. If you're you're in Oxford, Mississippi. You get you can get the same bad programming from Hollywood that we get here in Southern California. Right. Um, you know, so those cultural gaps is sort of what the Karl Marx called the idiocy of rural life, really doesn't exist anymore. So you you really have almost a more free flowing um, set of options for people. So one of the things that we're seeing is, for instance, among seniors um, and particularly the what we would call the young old the people in their late 50s, early 60s, uh, many of them, if, you know, they say, oh, they're moving back to the city. Actually, the numbers don't show that at all. Where they're moving, if anything, is further out or to small towns like Oxford. If you've got a little bit of scratch that you made in Houston and you want to, 
you know, you, you don't want to retire. You're not ready for a wheelchair. But, you know, you, you would like to live in a smaller town. Maybe in some cases you can go to a place that's a little bit less expensive. Um, and, and you want to slow things down. But because of technology, you're not cut off. You can still, if you're, if you're a financial trader, you can still do it. If you're a journalist, you can still write. Um, and so we really have, have sort of opened things up in ways that, that um, really weren't the case before. You know, I remember as a young kid driving from New York, where I grew up, um, across the country, and literally good coffee would stop in, in Manhattan, and you didn't see another good cup of coffee practically till you got to San Francisco. Right. Maybe you'd get one in Chicago if you were lucky. Um, and now, I mean, as you know, as uh, I'm the president, and sometimes mediocre as let's say Starbucks is. Nevertheless, you can get a decent cup of coffee, you know, at at every truck stop in America. So, so you know, I think that 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 culture, information, food. Uh, I'm constantly astounded by um, how much you can get very good food, sometimes very fine dining in cities that you never would have thought would have had such things. Um, so I think the options are growing. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think is happening, and I talk about in the human city, is some of the great urban environments in America, let's say you know, New York City being the premier one, but you know, parts of Chicago, San Francisco, um, uh, are you know, parts of Seattle, but the but the problem is is that these places are extraordinarily expensive, and if you are not really rich and you have a family, they're almost out of the question. But now you can go to a Columbus, you can go to uh, a what we might call a second tier city, a Pittsburgh, or um, and certainly to a Dallas or a Houston, um, and and actually have many of the same things that you used to only have in those in those very very elite environments. So. There are now many more options, urban, suburban, and in the countryside than existed in the past. And by the way, a great thing for consumers and a great thing for the American people in the end, Joel. I think so. I think, you know, one of the big uh, points that I try to make in the human city, and something I think is, is something I talk about a lot, is we need to have more options. You know, the, the sort of prevailing, if you say, New York Times version of the, of the universe is everything, you know, aspires to be Manhattan. Or you aspire to be like you know Aspen. I mean, those are sort of the same right, things. right. And, and the reality is, most people can't afford and probably don't even want to live in Manhattan, particularly because you they can't live in Manhattan the way uh, Michael Bloomberg does. They they you know living in Manhattan means living in a small apartment, um, probably having to pay for private schools if you have kids. Um, it's not that pleasant if you don't have a lot of money. Um, there are now many options, and that's why I believe that the middle part of the country, you know, the central time zone, if you want to start that, mm-hmm. is really the one place where uh, upward mobility and the middle class can still have a middle class life. Having a middle class life in, let's say, Southern California, where I live, is incredibly difficult for young families. Um, the chance of buying a home, let's say, here in Orange County, where Houses seven, eight hundred thousand dollars for something even remotely acceptable. Well, how many people can break into that market? I mean, we we see here in our own neighborhood lots of kids in their twenties and thirties living in the homes owned by their parents yep. because they cannot afford. Whereas, if you go to Dallas, you go to Houston, and certainly to many small towns, a, a, a young person who's earning 
uh, fifty thousand. Let's say um, their spouse is also you know, earning fifty thousand, a hundred thousand a year. Hundred thousand dollars a year buys you a pretty damn good lifestyle in suburban Houston or suburban Atlanta or suburban uh, Dallas, and it buys you nothing. Basically, it buys you a third world lifestyle in Southern California. Now, if you make a hundred thousand dollars, you're single, and you have two two people making a hundred thousand dollars with no children. They they can live you know a fairly nice life in Southern California, but once you decide to have a family, the whole equation changes. Indeed, you know I was watching once with some friends from New York, uh, the Home Improvement Channel and the Gaines family, and they do fixer uppers in Waco, Texas, and you see the price of a house, and it's a pretty nice house, and it's one hundred and fifty thousand dollars or one hundred and twenty five. And my friends in New York and New Jersey are going, oh come on, that can't be. Where is this? And I'm going. Waco is a big town. It's not a little town. It's 125,000, 150,000 people, and it's growing. And this is why it's growing. Right, and, th- and this, is, this is something that, you know, I spent a, a, a good, um, well, I'd say 45 minutes with a reporter for the New York Times who quoted me in an article today. And he's a very nice guy and, and, and fairly open-minded. But when I started to explain, well, well look, if these uh, dense urban environments that are very expensive were so preferable, then why are people moving to other places? I mean, if, if you know, there was another article also in the Times, you know, which is sort of the ideological center for this kind of thinking, saying, well, the best places are Massachusetts. You know, this is where everybody should be like Massachusetts. Well, okay, i tell you about Massachusetts. It's overwhelmingly white. You start there. Uh, it's, it, it, it's, very, it's getting very old. And guess what? People are leaving Massachusetts, and they're coming to Texas. So, in other words, you're telling me that they're leaving the great place and going to a crappy place. Um, I don't think people are as stupid as, uh, as the media thinks they are. Well, I think some of the media actually do. I mean, I'll never forget reading Thomas Frank's book, What's the Matter with Kansas? And he was really saying, what's the matter with Kansans? Because they were, in his mind, voting against their political interests. And by the way, he wasn't accounting for cultural things. It was all economics to him. And meanwhile, he wasn't even examining economics properly and affordability and issues like that, let alone the culture. Um, but I actually think that people uh, on, on a particular part of the political spectrum, and I think this is the far left, actually, are now of the mindset that if you don't agree with them or you don't live like they do, you're crazy or stupid. Yeah, I think there's a lot of that. Actually, in the book, I quote the, this magazine, the weekly magazine in, in Seattle called The Stranger, where they talk about, well, you know, all the good people are living in the dense urban centers, and, and, the, and the people out in the countryside are fatter and stupider and, you know, you know less enlightened. And I'm saying, that, well, wait a minute, the way I was brought up, you know, being enlightened meant being tolerant and trying to understand people, not to dismiss them. I mean, yep. they don't even see it. So as, you know, as, as I was talking to this, this, this report from the Times, he said the prejudice is so deep-seated that they don't even see it as prejudice. Yeah. Um, I mean, we have this kind of lack of, of understanding of really, you know, what our actions are and what we're really saying. So, you know, I mean, you can, you can, you can have people who will say people in the suburbs are dumb. People in the suburbs are, 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 or in small towns are, are evil and all this other stuff. But as you point out, very often those people have more day-to-day contact with people of other ethnicities and other classes than they would if they lived on the, uh, you know, on the Upper East Side or the Upper West Side of Manhattan. 
And by the way, Joel, it assumes that these same people in these small towns, a guy like me who lived in Brooklyn and grew up right next to New York City and still loves New York and still loves to visit, actually chooses a place like Oxford. So I knew the difference. And how many Americans travel? I mean, there's a thing called a plane. They're smart enough to go to Broadway, see things they love, but come back to the place they want to live and raise a family. I'll give you about 30 seconds just to close out right here. And then we'll do this again next week, Joel. I love this subject. Well, I think basically, I think what you what you have to be, you know, very clear about is that, you know, people make choices, and what America really should be about is choices. We shouldn't be dragooned to live one way or another, um, and we we have different uh, ways of life that we have at different stages of our life, and we should be accommodating that. That's so true. When we when we rejoin you next week, we're going to dig into the different stages of life and where people are living and moving from, depending on how old they are and where they are in their life. We're talking to Joel Kotkin, author of The Human City, Urbanism for the Rest of Us. Joel, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love telling your stories. And that's what this book is about. It's about you. It's about the American people, and this show is heard in big cities and small towns for just that reason. More after these messages. Just